0: First Samuel, this is our last study in this little brief series on how the mighty have fallen. We've looked at four examples, well we're going to be the fourth one tonight. People who fell in First Samuel. Eli was the first, the uh, God, or the temple, the, the uh, statue of the god, the idol Dagon. And then last week we looked at Goliath and this week King Saul. 1 Samuel 31, last chapter. April 18th, 1906. Does anybody know what that was? What happened on that date in America? April 18th, 1906. Yes, San, San Francisco earthquake and all that went with it. 5:12 in the morning, there was a guy named. You may not have ever heard of him, but Amadeo Peter Gianni. He felt the rumblings at 5:12. Everything began to shake, and complete devastation to San Francisco happened on that morning. Um, he was a banker, and decided to get as many people together as possible because his goal was to rebuild San Francisco. And that was kind of his slogan. So he started where he thought the best thing to do as a banker was, is to help the little guy. That was his term. So he kept giving money and lending money to little guys who needed to build, because he thought if he could build them up, that they would be able to rebuild the city of San Francisco. And he did that. And he did it more and more, little guy by little guy, as he would say. And because of his kindness to them, they deposited more and more money into his bank. And it began to grow and grow and grow, and by 1945, his bank had become the largest commercial bank in the world, and the name of it, he named it Bank of America. By 1980, Bank of America had already passed Chase Bank, it was the largest one, had 1,100 branches in America, and uh, and actually around the world, 100 different countries, their total assets, back in the 80s, was $100 billion. Eight years later, to everyone's surprise, Bank of America completely collapsed, fell apart, posted some of the biggest losses in U.S. banking history. How did it happen? Well, John Collins wrote a book called How the Mighty Have Fallen, taken from that verse in Scripture. Believe me, it's not a Christian book. It's a business book. And in it, he wrote about that company and many other companies at the time, Motorola, Circuit City, Zenith, um, AT&T, how these great companies had become so big and so wealthy and so powerful, but how each one of them fell and really crumbled. And he said that they, they collapsed, but they collapsed from the inside. And then he came to his conclusion in his book, How the Mighty Have Fallen. He said this, and the lesson I've learned is this, anyone can fall anyone now i I read that book as a business book and i thought you know what's true corporately is also true spiritually isn't it isn't that what the scriptures say in first corinthians 10 12 let anyone who thinks he stands take heed what lest he fall and that whole chapter as we reviewed it already once in this series is about people who had spiritual privileges they were baptized into moses under the cloud remember that They had all these privileges and all these things they observed and witnessed and saw God's hand at work, but it says this, and with most of them, not some or even a little bit or a good part of them, most of them, the majority of them, God was not well pleased and they died in the wilderness. See, all the privileges being in America, the freedom, going to church, being at faith, growing up here, maybe going to a Christian school, all that stuff does not guarantee that your life is going to be counted for Christ. Saul was the first king of Israel. Remember I said that it wasn't surprising to anyone that they asked for a king after the judges period, especially after all the chaos of all those years. God predicted back in the book of Deuteronomy that when they came to the land of Canaan, that they would ask for a king, like all the other nations is the phrase that describes it. Um, The problem wasn't that they asked for a king as the one they wanted is the problem. They didn't really want God to be their king anymore. They wanted someone like the nations had to represent them, one like them. And and unfortunately, they got what they asked for in King Saul. But you would never have known that he would turn out the way he did. If you read chapter 31, you wouldn't think the guy was going to end in such a complete failure and devastation of his life and, and of the people of Israel. You would have never seen that from the outstart. See, he was bigger than everybody else. Twice in 1 Samuel, it says he was head and shoulders bigger. He was a great warrior in a lot of ways. He actually started out humble and, and actually had, when he found out that God wanted or desired to make him king or Samuel, he, he said in 1 Samuel nine twenty one, am I not a Benjamite of the least tribe? And is not my family the least and the family in the least of the least tribe? And he was very humble and didn't think he could really do it. But that's not how things ended. He won his first battle at Jabesh Gilead and when at the end they found him dead on the battlefield and cut his head off and mounted his body as well as his sons to the wall at Beit Sheon. The Jabesh Gilead people came and got him because they remembered that he rescued them. So it wasn't that he didn't do any good things. It wasn't that he didn't win any battles. But the problem is is that Saul fell. And when you read chapter 31 and how he ended, you might get the idea that it, it was unfortunate. It was a couple bad choices. He got overwhelmed. He got outnumbered or something along those lines. And you really can't read Saul. I mean, 1 Samuel 31 and, and, and Saul's, Saul's fall without reading it in the context of his entire life. I'm going to submit to you tonight that what we have happened by the end of this book is Saul has become basically a Philistine. Um, I would tell you tonight, based on my reading of it, that fall, Saul fell spiritually way before he fell in battle spirit, physically. Um, and I want to show you that tonight. I want to prove that to you. So, in the Bible, there's a number of things. We haven't, we haven't read all the chapters, but I want to give you some groundwork before we look at some verses in chapter 31. Saul fell in his behaviors and his belief before he fell in battle. He was destroyed outwardly, but he was destroyed inwardly way, way earlier. Listen, if any one of us can fall, we need to be careful because all the things that happen to us and what we do on the outside are only revelations and manifestations of what we already have become on the inside. The reason he died and killed himself on the battlefield and why he was defeated by the Philistines was because he was defeated by his own life and sin way, way earlier than he'd ever... Let me tell you this. If you're going to keep yourself from falling, and by the way, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 says, if you have these qualities in you, you will never double negative, you'll never fall. So here's what the New Testament teaches as we look back. You know, it is something to be concerned about. It is a warning to be given and heeded by us all that we can fall. See, no one is immune from it. No one is excluded from it. No one is beyond it or above it. Take heed lest you fall. Saul did not. And his life is forever etched in the scriptures and penned for us to show us how not to heed the warnings, right? Not to live in that, that way. Saul became, he lived as a Philistine and he died like a Philistine. And I want to show you that. Now our chapter, look at it, verse chapter 31. There's a lot of falling going on in this chapter. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines, circled and fell slain. Okay, not every single time, but there is a pattern in 1 Samuel, as we've seen, that when you fall, if it describes your death in that way, it is a very, very negative thing. There are other people who died in First and Second Samuel, but they're not described in their death by falling. Jonathan dies in the same battle as his dad, but it doesn't describe his death as a fall. David dies in 2 Samuel, but it doesn't describe his death as a fall. But it does for Eli, Dagon, Goliath, and for King Saul. Now we've noticed three traits. I'm going to go back Let me, before I get to that. Saul, uh, verse Samuel 31.4. Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. 31.5. His armor bearer fell upon his sword and died with him. 31.6. But none of them uh, are recorded as falling. I said that already. Verse 30, 31, verse 8. It's used to describe Saul's sons. They fall, but because Saul, only because Saul is identified, they're identified with him by name. So you can find there are a lot of falling going on in this passage, and it's all centered around Saul. Second Samuel chapter one is a rendition from David's point of view after hearing the news from the Amalekite. And three times, in Second Samuel 1, verse 19, 25 and 27. David in his poem says, How has the mighty fallen? He wrote a story or a song or a poem about Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, his best friend, how they fell, including Saul most of all. You look at Saul's life, I'm going to say more about it and, and show you some things to prove my point about him living and dying like a Philistine, but you have to ask the question, and it's really an age old question, and I asked almost everybody on staff this week, and I don't know where you would stand if you've even given much thought to it, but a lot of theologians have, and commentators over time. Was Saul a believer? Was he a believer? Was he really, did he really believe? Was he forgiven? Will we see him in heaven someday? Now, before I tell you what I think, I can tell you I've read many, many books on it. I've read numerous articles on the internet, and I would say 50-50. 50-50. I think if you're not living for Jesus very much, it might be more comforting to think that he will be in heaven because that would make you feel better about your situation, perhaps. But there's a lot of people, and they all post reasons um, to think whether he is or whether he is not. Um, lot um, seemingly would not qualify someone you think was an outstanding believer. But 2 Peter w- chapter 2, verse 9 says he's righteous. Now, the difference might be in some of these other stories is we have a chapter or two about Lot. We have 22 chapters about Saul. So we don't get to see as much of his entire life, I mean, other people's, as much as we do Saul. We get to see, really, the trajectory of his whole life, otherwise, compared to other people in Scripture that we have questions about. But Saul, was he a believer? Um, And I bring that up to you tonight, because it's in our series, the last one, and because it's a very relevant question. What does it make, how does someone know that they are a believer? How do they have confidence in it? How can you have assurance? Can you profess to be one thing and then practice in your life to be someone completely different and expect to go to heaven? What does Saul's fall really mean? Okay? Now, I want to point some things out to you tonight. And I still haven't told you my view, but you're probably getting closer to what I might think. But I want you to kind of think about it first. So let me tell you, I read 1 John a myriad of times, and you have too. And there's tests of a real faith, just like James. And the tests are in two categories, by and large. Vertical, your relationship with God. And then horizontal, your relationship with people. So that basic test we're going to put to uh, Saul's life tonight. So vertically, let me tell you about his relationship with God and what it was characterized by. First of all, in 1 Samuel 13, he disobeyed God's direct word about offering a sacrifice. He was supposed to wait till Samuel got there. He didn't wait before the battle. It was a thing in, in religious ancient Near East that before you had a battle, you offered an offering to your God. Even pagans did it. Um, Israel does it, and they're supposed to wait. Now Philistines were about to attack. Saul was very anxious. And so he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting and he doesn't wait long enough because he thinks he's going to get in trouble if he waits much longer, so he decides to do it without him. And Saul himself offers the sacrifice to God, which was illegal, according to Torah. God forbade it. You had to be a priest, and he wasn't. And of course, just like it happens in our lives, right? As soon as he's done making the sacrifice, of course, Samuel shows up. And God says, because you've done that, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. Now, we don't think, well, that's a big... he really didn't do what he was supposed to do, but is that much of a big deal? God said, such a big deal that you're not going to be king any longer because of it. First Samuel 15, he again disobeys God's word. He's supposed to go into and kill all the Amalekites because of the way they attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. They attacked them from the rear of their procession. At the rear of the procession of about two to three million people were all the sick people, the aged people, the elderly and infirmed people. They all were in the back. Everybody knew that when you traveled, that that's what happened because they couldn't walk as fast. You don't put them in the front. You put them in the back so they don't fall behind. The Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear, which was really horribly awful. And God wanted to punish them as a result of that. And Saul's job was to bring out that punishment and exterminate them completely and not spare anyone or anything, including animals or anything. You know the story in 1 Samuel 15. He disobeys. He spares Agag. Samuel, when he comes, has the Bible says very graphically, cut him in pieces. Um, he spared the animal, the sheep, the best of them, and then sacrificed the rest and killed everyone else. So he's partial obedient and God says what you've done is synonymous with idolatry and witchcraft. Which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Since he, he went to a, a medium, a, a, a witch at the end of his life. So you can see what he did there. Trajectory, what he did forward from that, right? So he disobeyed God directly twice. First Samuel 27, I just mentioned, he went to a witch. And it's kind of crazy, isn't it? And this is showing you the trajectory of his life. He comes to the witch at Endor, by the way, who never in her mind, last, her fondest dreams, ever thought she'd actually conjure up Samuel actually from the dead, because they really normally couldn't do any of those things. But in this case, God allows it, and she does and It scares her out of her mind, um, again. And, and, then, and, and, and she was so scared to begin with that Saul had stamped out all witchcraft earlier in his ministry, but now here he is, the guy who you know, stamped it out, now the guy is asking him to, and to do it himself. I mean, that's how much he had changed. Now, those are only the vertical things. Horizontally, he tried to murder David twice. Interesting. From the time that he started, can I say it this way, to go bad, there are nine examples or instances where you have a picture of Saul And in all those nine times, he has a spear in his hand because he is just like Goliath. Goliath had a spear in his hand, the enemy of God. And now Saul is almost always pictured with a spear or a sword in his hand. In fact, we'll see in a minute, he dies by leaning on his spear, which ended up killing him. But he tries to murder David twice with that spear. He even tried one time to have his own son, Jonathan, murdered. He got upset because the priest at Nob uh, took in David and gave him Goliath's sword and some bread, showbread from the tabernacle. And so he had 85 priests and all of their families murdered. And then in the end of his life, he murders himself, suicide. So here's the horizontal He had a real tough time with David, Jonathan, and anyone who stood in his way from eliminating him. He was known for murder. And we know what 1 John 3.15 says. We all know this. This is the word. We know this, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Right? So you got Saul lived like a Philistine. He murdered. He had to get people, eliminate them to get out of his way. He had a sword or a spear in his hand almost at every turn in his life. And then not only did he live like a Philistine, he died like one. The Bible says that he was killed um, on the battlefield. Um, his own armor bearer wouldn't do it because he was afraid of what God would do to him. Although eventually he kills himself, which I'm not sure which is worse. But, um, so he dies on the battlefield. Now watch. The first battle in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is the battle about the main character and his sons dying in the same day. We talked about Eli. Eli and his sons died on the same day, and they took the ark, and it was Ichabod, the glory of God departed. But this, the guy and his sons die on the same day. Now, the last battle in 1 Samuel, the complete other end of the book, is the exact same story, different people. Now you got Saul, instead of Eli, dying, and all of his sons die in the same battle on the same day. Why? Because they're both in the same boat. They're both people who fall in this chapter because of pride, and God has to humble them. He died like Eli. Saul died like Abimelech in Judges 9. You remember Abimelech comes, and he tries to take this city, and he's fighting, and all of a sudden this woman who's caught up in a tower being protected, she drops an upper millstone, it says, which would be a very large rock, from the tower, Abimelech is standing at the bottom fighting, and it hits him in the head. He's going to die, and he knows it, and so he tells his armor bearer, please thrust me through because I don't want people to remember me as the guy who was killed by a woman in a rock. And so the guy does it. Now, just like he had his armor bearer try to kill him, Saul says in the same thing, hey, he asked his armor bearer to kill him, and eventually he doesn't, but he falls on his own spear, and they cut his head off. Same result. He also is like Goliath in his death, and his spear, and his fighting, and all that he was doing, and they cut, remember this? They cut off Dagon's head in the temple when it falls, and his head falls off, remember that? Then you got Goliath, he he loses a battle, and David cuts his head off, and what happens to Saul? He dies in battle, and they cut his head off. I mean, there's, the patterns in Scripture are there for a reason. Because you're supposed to get this, this is who Saul really was. It really was him. He's like Eli, he's like Abimelech, he's like the statue or the god Dagon, he's like Goliath, he's like these people, he is really like a Philistine. Listen, that's how he lived and that's how he died. Now here's the question for us. If you live like an unbeliever but claimed to be a believer, which one are you really? I find it to be striking that Saul, in one of his acts of disobedience, spared the Amalekites. Is it ironic that in 2 Samuel chapter 1, a little different twist on the story about his final moments, this is the story that David is told by the guy who comes from the battle to tell him what happened. The guy says, I came upon, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. What a joke that is. No one happens to be on that battle, by the way. So he says, I'm there, and I see Saul is sitting there, and he has fallen on his spear. He's, actually, what Hebrew word is, he's leaning on it. And I'm thinking that, first of all, he got shot by arrows. The archers got to him, and his, all, his sons have already been killed. He's trying to get out of the battle. He got shot by archers, and they were the ones who traveled after the most important person. And he didn't think to disguise himself too well. because So he is hit in the, probably in the arm or the chest and so now he's starting to die. He knows he's not going to make it. He's afraid he's going to fall in battle. He even says to the armor bearer, and they're going to catch me alive, and they're going to torture me, and I don't want that, so would you please kill me with your sword? His armor bearer refused to do it, and so Saul has to kill himself, seemingly, not to be too graphic, stuck his spear in the ground on the blunt end with it up, and, and fell on it. And he does that, according to this guy, and he's still not dead. And he's, so the guy who comes up to him sees him from a distance and he says, please come. He goes, I still have life in me. Finish me off. And the guy does. Not the armor bearer, but this guy finishes him off, takes the crown off of his head, the royal insignia of his armlet on there, takes those off, brings them to David, thinking that David's going to go, hot dog, he's dead, I'm going to be the king, you're an awesome guy. Eventually the guy who brought that stuff loses his life because David says you touch God's anointed and I'm going to have to kill you. And he does. But you know who the guy was? An Amalekite. No name. But see, he, what he spared in his disobedience, the Amalekites, the Amalekite guy is the one who kills him. Right? Because God knows what Saul is really like. And he wants to show us who he really is. Now, before you finally answer the question about is Saul a believer, you have to deal with some other verses. Now, we've seen the trajectory of his life. We've seen the events vertically and horizontally. But let me deal with some difficulties that people have in thinking about Saul's being a believer or not. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you want to turn there, verses 5, 6, and 9. It says in verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. And then a a verse later it says, and he prophesied. And then a few verses later in chapter 10 and verse 9, it says, on that day Saul had a change of heart. What does that mean? Is it possible for the spirit of the Lord to come on someone and prophesy and not be a believer? That seems pretty strong, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you what happened. Let me give you a verse first. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Anybody know by heart? You know, it's the scariest passage, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll quote it for you. Ready? Many will say, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, what? Lord, Lord. What, ready? Have we not? What? prophesied in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful or many works or signs and these would be ones wonderful means a full of wonder means God's wonders like Egyptian plagues like in other words supernatural things so they prophesied they cast out demons And they did supernatural things. And Jesus says to these people who do all three, including prophesy, what? Depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Do you think that when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples and told them that they should have power over physical illness and they should be able to cast out demons and raise from the dead, do you think that when they went out that everyone did it except Judas? Judas? You remember the passage when they come back and everybody's going like, oh, it was awesome, God, your power's great, but what's wrong with Judas? You remember that pa- Well, it's not in there. Because Judas could do what all the other one did. Why? Because prophesying and doing miraculous things or even casting out demons doesn't mean that you're a believer because people said, Jesus said, there'll be many people on that day who say they did these things or actually did, and Judas will be one of them. In fact, can I tell you, Satan can do them. See, here's what it's, he prophesied and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now, Spirit of the Lord doesn't always mean he was on him in a way that he saved him, but the Bible talks about the Spirit of the Lord coming on those who are God's anointed. And God would give them a special endowment to do certain things as their role of king demanded. And you can see from this passage, in the passage I've mentioned to you, that the Bible says he could do certain things, but it didn't mean his life was changed. But people say, verse 9 says, on that day, Saul's heart was changed. Well, the question is, how is it changed and what was it changed about? It doesn't say his heart was changed and he was not saved and now he is. What he was really in turmoil about until that day where God wrought a battle and, and gave him the victory was, he didn't know if he should be king because he was from a tribe, and from a family that wasn't very prominent. And so he didn't really think that he should be king, and he doubted whether he should do any of these things. And he really hadn't accepted fully the role. And that day when God gave him the victory, it changed his heart. And now he decided, yeah, I thank God I can do it. Now listen, Saul didn't do all bad things. He won a battle. He protected some people. And sometimes he went after David, and sometimes he didn't. But here's what the Bible says that Samuel said, last one. 1 Samuel 28, 19, the witch brings up Samuel by God's permission. Samuel says to to Saul, tomorrow, when you go to battle, in other words, you and your sons will be with me. Some people mean to think that, oh yeah, they went to be with Samuel. Samuel was a good guy, and they went to be with Samuel, means they were saved. But the word he says is a prophesying of their death, and the word is Sheol, and it means the place of the dead. There were two compartments, the ones for righteousness and unrighteousness, but everybody, when you died, went to the quote-unquote same place, just not the same compartment. Saul, all that Samuel's saying is, when you go to battle tomorrow, you and your sons are all gonna die, and you're gonna die and be the place of the death, like I'm in the place of death. He's not saying about which part of it. So let me tell you what I think happens. Saul's life, has a trajectory of one level of disobedience to a greater disobedience all the way through his life. The Bible, if you read 1 John, the test of your real faith is not that you never disobey or never do anything wrong because David murdered and was an adulterer and lied and other things. But what you find out is that David's trajectory of his life is not marked by any of those things, although he did some of them. Saul's life and trajectory is what 1 John calls if you practice sin. If it's sin as a lifestyle, he was a murderer. Cain, 1 John 3, was a murderer because he was of his father the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. That's why he tried to have David murdered, his own son murdered. That's why he had 85 families murdered because that's who he was. And I think for me, maybe not for you, for me one of the biggest ways, I mean I believe Saul was an unbeliever, Was because he was constantly trying to kill David, the anointed Messiah who represents Jesus. And I think that's a picture of what he really thought of it. And I think he was David's enemy almost his entire life because he was opposed to David and all that he stood for. And I think David represents Jesus, although imperfectly. What does that mean for us? Four lessons, if you want to write them down. Please write them down for yourself and for your children. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. His conformity seemed to be on the right track, but he ended up being conformed to the world. He became more like the Philistines than he did anyone else, and he died that way. Um, So please, if you have children who make decisions early in their life, as my children did, and profess Christ as their Savior, and say the prayer and ask Jesus into their heart, do not think that the battle is over. Can I say that to you? A good start does not guarantee a good finish. Obviously, note this. Saul's problem was not theological or that he held or in inherently bad beliefs. It's that his behavior never matched them. He did not have heresy he was not out to lunch in some leftist field and, and some doctrinal problems. Although he disobeyed God's word, but so did David. But his belief was far, far from what his, his behavior was far from what his beliefs were. Number two, Saul focused on, listen to this, Saul focused on winning military battles, but not personal spiritual battles. He was good at his job, but he wasn't good at God. Listen, that can be you and our children. You know, you can raise children and bring them to church. They say the prayer when they're little kids, but you know what their life can be about, which can ruin them in every possible way. They can be about all the things that they're supposed to do. Be good at sports when they play it, be good at their education and get high grades. And get, see, and our kids can be all of this and, all, and nothing wrong with any of those things, but they can do all those things and they'd be really good at their battles, but never at their own personal battles. They can be excellent and get scholarships and, and great grades and, and never get in quote unquote trouble, but they, on the inside, have been losing the battle for a long time about their love and their real true devotion to God. Number three, God judges by the heart, not just by the outward appearance. That's a verse, 1 Samuel 16. The man looketh on the outward appearance, but the the Lord looks on the heart. I would say it this way. Saul was an outside king. David was an inside king. Saul looked like He should be the right guy. Bigger and better, warrior, stronger, handsome, all that. But he turned out to be terrible because he had no inside for God. David had an inside for God. And although he messed up on the outside, what he is the standard by which all other kings are measured by. He was a man after God's own heart. Be careful because you can come to church and so can your children. And they can cut their hair to the right length and wear the right clothes and have the Bible and come here and be at the services and do all that stuff and grow up. And you wonder when they go into college, why they stopped going to church and why don't they care about God? Why? Because we have raised them to measure their love for God and their relationship with him by all the external things that we do without having internal. And lastly, can I say, what we learn from Saul's life is a pattern of disobedience, a pattern of continual disobedience is an indication of unbelief. It's a pattern of it. Almost every one of my, in fact, my two boys, and I've told this story, they both in their lives said they they were Christians when they were very small, six, seven years old. My, both of them weren't saved until they were truly saved, until they were in their twenties, although they thought they were, but they had to come to very difficult at times to come to the conclusion that they really weren't saved, and the reason was, is that only they knew all the facts, but none of it had ever changed their life, none of it. We all know that we don't earn our way to heaven, we don't work our way to heaven, we don't do things to get to heaven, and our personal righteousness never gets us anywhere in favor or merit with God. We know that that's as basic as ABC. But what we don't realize often is that if you're truly saved, you will have changed. You will change. You will. This Sunday night, I'm preaching Sunday morning and Sunday night, I'm going to do a message, and you can start looking at it yourself. There are five times in the book of 1 John where the little phrase, this little phrase is used, as he is. Without giving too much of it away, or you'll just stay home, right? (laughs) The phrases are, listen to this, walk in the light as he is in the light. What's the standard of whether you're walking in the light and not in darkness? Oh, he is. Everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. You're not righteous, verse 7, chapter 3, unless you're righteous as he is righteous. See, See, Jesus is the standard. Can I tell you this? Being like Jesus, having a trajectory of obedience... To whatever different degree of anyone else, some up and down, there's back and forth, there's growth and maturity, and the trajectory is not the same for everyone, but there is this progression. If you do not have it, that is a good sign of being unbeliever. Because if you're not as he is in this world, you should, here's what First John 4, 17 said, you should fear judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. See, it's not just a profession so that you can have a ticket to heaven. No, salvation and eternal life starts now. Now are we sons of God. See, Saul, I believe, was lost. And the reason was is that he had nothing on the inside for God, and his life showed it. And there are other examples of that in Scripture. But I want you to ask yourself tonight, what about my life? What is the trajectory of my life? What is the tra- trajectory of my kids' life? Can I say this and I'll close numerous times my boys both asked me various different times more than once, "Dad, do you think I'm saved?" Knowing I knew the full background of they asked Jesus into their heart and every time I said absolutely not. They weren't. Because they didn't have any desire for it. They didn't just not they just not they just didn't do bad things. They really didn't want to do good things. And I don't mean, hey, read my Bible because I don't want to be you know, a person who doesn't read their Bible or come to church. They occasionally do that kind of stuff. But you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they really didn't have a desire for spiritual things. They really didn't. They had no trajectory. Ask yourself the hard questions. We've asked tonight, is Saul a believer? Ask yourself this, am I a believer Is there some Christ conformity and some Christ commitment to my life or is it a duty? Is it a ritual? Is it a routine? Is it religiously something I only do on the outside so that I'm not afraid of what might happen in the future? That question and your answer can be the difference for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we have in this series taken a hard look in 1 Samuel, at people who fell. The Bible is full of them. Peter warns against it. Father, I pray tonight for all those who have been here and are under the sound of my voice, that they would take spiritual evaluation and inventory of their own heart and have the humility, which is the key, to keep from falling, to take a look at their life, And be honest about where they stand. No one's looking for perfection. Because we all fall short of that. But where is my life headed? What is the trajectory? What is the pattern of my life? Help us to take a hard look at that and answer it correctly. And Lord, then act on it according to the revelation of your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.